0: It's Stephen Henderson, and today on the podcast, we're going to talk with Dan Kildee, a congressman who represents Michigan's 8th district in Washington. That district includes Flint and many other mid-state communities. We're going to talk about the fact that Kildee has said he will not seek re-election in 2024. What does that mean for that mid-state district? What does it mean for the legacy of Kildee, who's been there since 2013? And importantly, how do our politics, as well as our policies, move forward in an era of bitter division, not only here in Michigan, but also in Washington? Congressman Kildee, welcome back to Detroit Today.
1: Thank you, Stephen. It's good to be back with you.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you here. So uh, I want to start by going back to that day in 2008, I think it was 2008, it may have been 2007, when I came up to Flint and met you and you took me on this tour of uh, properties and neighborhoods and communities in that city. And as I said, you had this incredible energy and drive about the chance to to make a big difference um, in that city. Uh, it, it struck me then that that you had a really uh, different way of approaching problem solving, right? That uh, yes, there are liberal ideas, there are conservative ideas, but the best ideas are the ones that work, and that was why you were so focused on this tool, uh, the land bank. Uh, of course, you go f- from there uh, to Congress, but but talk about those initial days uh, in in public office, and I know you were on the Board of Ed before that, but uh, uh, talk about that drive, that sense of, here's how we can fix things, and how that kind of has shaped your sensibilities in politics.
1: Well, uh, thanks, Stephen, for, for that question, because it does, I think, define my approach to the work I've done throughout my career, and that is just trying to find ways to make things better for the people that I work for. And sometimes that means I have a toolbox that looks like what a member of Congress has. Sometimes like uh, you know, it means I have a different toolbox. When I was county treasurer, I, I saw this opportunity to do something with abandoned property that would make life better for people living in the neighborhoods of my hometown. And so my, my approach has always been, as you said, that Not so much ideological, although I do have strong views about the role of government. and I have an ideology that defines that. But it's more about translating um, philosophy of government into actual work on the ground. And it does kind of connect to what we're dealing with now in the broader political environment. There's far less emphasis on actually getting things done that affect the lives of the people that we all work for and far too much emphasis on embracing a philosophy or an ideology without any commitment to actually see it through to policy. Too many people want to look in the mirror, congratulate themselves about their righteousness, having done exactly nothing for the people that they purport to love so much. Mm. (laughs) That's why that work that I was doing, you know, when I was the county treasurer and Initiating the land bank concept, I think, is quite defining of my philosophy. You know, it it's all about making life better for people, one family, one house, one neighborhood at a time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, four years later, of course, you you run for Congress and you win and you go to Washington. You go to a Washington that uh, I think looks really different <laughs> than the one uh, you work in today. Um, which is pretty remarkable because the Washington that you joined in 2013 looked really different from the Washington that that I left to come back to Detroit uh, you know, just just six or seven years earlier. I mean, there there was this really dramatic change. So so I want to go back to, that that early time uh, that you're in in Washington, um, uh, trying to 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 figure out uh, you know how things work, of course, but 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 how you can get things done uh, in an environment where so much is is breaking down. Uh, what what were those initial months and years like?
1: Well, it is interesting the way you describe it because it is it was a different time even. You know, 11 years ago, when I showed up in Congress, it was a completely different time uh, as compared to what we're dealing with right now. When I arrived in Washington, we had what was more of a conventional division between Democrats and Republicans. It feels quaint looking back at it now because we had John Boehner uh, as the speaker. Uh, Paul Ryan chaired the budget committee. These were, and eventually became speaker, these were people with whom I had Pretty significant policy differences, but had a degree of respect for the deliberative process, for the give and take uh, in legislating that is obviously absent now. It allowed me, for example, to work with, at the point that he became speaker, then speaker Paul Ryan, to navigate the Flint aid package through a bipartisan and a bipartisan way through a Republican-led Congress. I couldn't even imagine doing something like that given the current uh political leadership, Kevin McCarthy and now Speaker Johnson. It was a different time. It was when the Republican Party was actually the Republican Party and not this sort of splintered version of itself. Um it's you know, the hope is obviously we get back to that, but it was as you described, a completely different place then.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm talking with uh, Dan Kildee. He is a member of Congress who represents Michigan's eighth district, which of course includes Flint. Uh, we're talking about his uh, career in Congress and his decision not to seek reelection. Uh, last year, after a decade in Washington, uh, we'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call. Uh, let us know if you have questions for Congressman Kildee about his time in office. Do you have questions about what he makes of our politics today? And are you wondering what direction uh, this seat in the middle of our state will go next year in 2024? Also, what direction Congress go uh, after uh, Dan Kildee leaves. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313 1019 You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversations uh, that way. Uh, Dan, I want to talk about what's, what's happened uh, since those early times in in uh, Congress and, and uh, what happens after 2016, of course, when uh, Donald Trump is elected president, uh, and, and now when we're facing another election in which uh, Trump will be uh, will be the, the, the nominee, um, uh, what do you make of the Washington you're leaving, uh, or will be leaving in uh, in 2025, uh, early 2025, versus what you got there to face before?
1: Well, it clearly changed, uh, you know, sort of midway through my time in Washington it was it was not a uh, snap of a finger but there was a defining moment and that was the arrival of Donald Trump on the political scene as the main sort of uh, personality within the Republican party he has redefined that party and in some ways has redefined the state of american politics i don't mean to suggest he's the cause of it all in many ways he's the result of a coarsening of political speech in this country which was already something we were seeing but he gave life to that to that coarsening to that um, that anger that irrational anger uh, the sort of an angry populism and we've seen that really take over one political party uh, Republican Party and the consequences of that are being felt even now the, the 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 fact that we went through this difficult period just this year in trying to Organize the Congress, uh, elect a speaker in the first place back Mm -hmm. in January, have the speaker being vacated, uh, going through many rounds of voting to find a new Republican speaker. All of that is the direct result of the impact uh, that Donald Trump has had on the Republican Party. Again, he didn't create the uh, conditions in many ways. They were something that he took advantage of. But he has certainly exacerbated the problem by creating an environment where if a Republican officeholder crosses Donald Trump, they do it at their own peril. And so it's given the most extreme voices in Congress a outsized role in dictating the terms that the Republican Party will apply themselves to as they attempt to govern. And that's the biggest, you know, dynamic The most, I think, um, the destructive dynamic that we see right now, if if conventional Republican members of Congress, and there still are some, if they would take control of their party again, it would be a different situation. We'd still have disagreements, but it would be far more civil and the process, I think, would be far more workable.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I want to talk about the the Problem Solvers con, uh, uh, Caucus. You've been in the Progressive caucus since you joined Congress and and now you're in this new problem solvers caucus. I I wonder how that works, whether you think it works, and whether uh, there's too much pressure on both Democrats and Republicans who've decided to to work together in this way uh, from their parties or from their constituents to not do it, uh, I mean, there's something there's something about this now that's uh, you know not just counterintuitive, uh, but 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 runs against a pretty powerful force in in our politics. So tell me about that problem solvers caucus and how it works.
1: Yeah, so it's you know it's a group of members of Congress equally divided between Democrats and Republicans. The only way you can join, uh, if you're a Democrat, is to come in with a Republican or vice versa. So it's intended to be equal numbers. It is not, as some people believe, a solely a group of moderate Democrats and Republicans. Mm-hmm. I'm, I tend toward, as you said, tend toward uh, a sort of left of center, more progressive approach, not entirely, but you know, certainly that's my ideology. And there are Republicans who would clearly be defined as conservatives. My view on it is it's not about ideology. It's about a commitment to work through the deliberative process respectfully and respect the outcome of the process. I, I think there often is confusion. And this is where I think the problem solvers have a potential to be, to be constructive. But there's, a, I think, a misconception that the divisions in American politics are because of Big ideological differences—the more, the more difficult divisions that we face now—I don't believe are because of different ideologies. Because we've had left, right, and center pr- uh, perspectives in Congress for a long, long time. The difference now is that there are far too many people who are unwilling to work in a, in a with a goal of compromise to try to make some progress on the issues that we feel are important, but not take the position that unless I get my way entirely, I will not support even modest progress toward goals that we might share. There's, no, there's not as much a commitment to this thoughtful process of governing, which requires some compromise. And so in my view and the reason that I joined Problem Solvers is to try to bring Uh, you know, the entirety of the political spectrum to a table where Democrats and Republicans can have a conversation. That table doesn't exist very, you know, very often. Yeah. So my my decision to join was based solely on that. And
0: and can you point to things, can you point to things that you think, uh, outcomes that you think are different because of the existence of this, of this caucus? I mean, are there things that, that seem possible uh, that, that maybe weren't before?
1: Well, there are some, you know, and I will say this, that it's a work in progress. uh, But but I think the bipartisan infrastructure law is a good example where, and and I want to be clear, I don't don't buy the sort of narrative that the problem solvers caucus themselves came to the rescue and solved the problem all by themselves. But it does help in finding solutions. To have a place where these cross-party conversations can take place, you know, in a respectful, uh, iterative process. And I think what the Problem Solvers Table was able to do was help create an environment where a bipartisan piece of legislation, like the infrastructure law, could actually find its way to the president's desk. Yeah,
0: yeah. OK, uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Congressman Dan Keldy, Michigan's eighth congressional district, who has decided not to seek re-election next year in 2024. We're going to talk about that decision and some of the other highlights of his career when we come back with more Detroit Today. Dan, I would want to talk now about this decision, this really remarkable decision uh, that you've made to not seek re-election uh, next year. Uh, you know, 10 years in Congress is a long time, but it's also kind of that first phase for, for people in, in Washington where, you know, you're you're proving yourself, you're earning your bona fides and uh, maybe ready for much bigger responsibilities uh, going going forward uh you're stepping away before that period uh, talk about how you reached that decision recently
1: well you know first of all these decisions while they seem like they're political decisions at least in terms of the way the public might consume them they're personal decisions first mm-hmm. and foremost mm-hmm. uh, we're all human beings uh You know, the 12 years that when I leave, that I will have served in uh, Congress. Uh, When my wife and I had the conversation over a decade ago about doing this, knowing that it would, you know, uh, result in us being uh, apart for literally half of the time, um, we made made the decision that we'll do this for the next 10 years, and then we'll take it two years at a time and see if it works for us. I'm just at a point where it's, it's important for me to be with my family. And as you mentioned at the outset of the call, you know, I I was diagnosed with cancer early this year, Mm -hmm. went through pretty difficult surgery and recovery is still underway. I'm cancer free, but I'm still recovering from that surgery. That gave me some time to reflect about how I spend my time. Uh, And so I've made the conclusion, my wife and I together, that uh, it was time for me to be a full-time Michigander, to be home, to be here with friends and family more. Not to give up on the work I'm doing, but to find another toolbox to continue to do this sort of work. You know, as, as to the idea that you know leaving, leaving Congress at a critical moment, there's never a good time to leave Congress, and there's never the wrong time. Mm. Uh, it's always difficult. Um, but one of the things I've learned, not just in Congress, but in other roles that I've had, Uh, but this is particularly true in in Congress members of Congress are pretty good at talking themselves into the belief that they alone can do the job that nobody can do it as well as they, um, look at, we're all replaceable. Y'all can be succeeded by somebody who takes it to the next level. I'm not obsessed with the notion that, uh, that, that I alone can do this job. Mm. Um, Somebody's going to do a great job that will follow me. Uh, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that person is a Democrat. Um, but none of us are are so um, incredible that we are irreplaceable. Yeah. So I'm I'm yeah. happy to hand it over to somebody else. Uh,
0: uh, talk about what you might do after you leave. Now I know, I mean I know right now what you're saying is I need to spend more time with with. Family and and the kind of private and personal side of of life, but but I think I know you well enough to know that that there will still be that drive um, to fix things and to and to help think through especially tough policy questions that we face. Can you forecast just a little uh, past past that last day in Congress?
1: For sure. Well, one thing that I'm um, absolutely correct. I, I will still have a voice. And I will use the fact that I have served in the Congress uh, as a way to have a larger platform for that voice to be heard, to continue to argue for, you know, a more civil uh, approach to to governing, for example. But I, I'll—I don't know precisely what I'll be doing, except that I know I'll be continuing to work to try to solve problems. My hope, what I desire to do, is get back to doing that kind of work right here on the ground in Michigan and actually see the results of my efforts more directly. Um, My time in Washington has been great. I've made, I think, a big difference in terms of federal policy as it relates to communities that I care about, including my hometown. But I do miss the opportunity to be right there in the community um, making a difference. In in this case, it'll be outside the the role of elective office, I'm, I'm certain. But there are lots of opportunities that I'll pursue that'll give me a chance to continue to be a contributing part of a of the community, of the state, and hopefully a voice that the country will continue to to hear from time to time. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: I, I do want to give you a chance to talk about uh, uh, the Flint water crisis and uh, your role in asserting. The voice of the people of Flint, uh, not just uh, in Washington, but but especially here in Michigan as well, when that when that happened, and and how much uh, that mattered, that event mattered in the time that you served in Congress, but but how much it still matters uh, to the people of Flint uh, today, and and the things that that still need to be addressed.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a defining issue for something you of us. And particularly in my time in Congress, it will clearly be a defining issue. The Flint water crisis is uh, was a, was a tragedy. It's an ongoing tragedy in many ways because the health and economic impact of it will be felt for a long time to come. When it all first came to, uh, to all of our attention, there was very much a sense by some that well, this is a shame, it's a terrible tragedy but you know, there's not much that can be done. And that was unacceptable to a lot of us. It was certainly unacceptable to me that the federal government wouldn't play a role in trying to fix what was a man-made crisis. And mm-hmm. so for me, uh, it was one of those moments where I could look at myself in the mirror and say, I know exactly why I'm here in Congress right now. And it's to get help for the people of my hometown when they most needed it. But, Stephen, as you know, you know, justice for the people of Flint comes in many different forms. Mm-hmm. One of them is fixing the problem, and we still have work to do uh, on that front. The other is holding people accountable for the decisions that led to this crisis. And uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure you uh, are aware that I'm deeply disappointed that those who are most responsible for the decisions that caused the Flint water crisis will apparently not be held personally Accountable for the choices that they made, the justice system has failed the people of Flint, and that is, I think, a very sad part of the story of the Flint water crisis. That you, chapter, you're talking
0: about the criminal prosecutions that now exactly, won't happen. Exactly, you you believe that that uh, you believe that somebody did commit a crime uh, in well, in what happened.
1: Yeah, I, I've been very clear on this over my career. I don't prejudge criminal prosecutions. I do, however, believe that the, victim of, the victims of a crime have the right to have their day in court. I believe what happened in Flint was criminal. I don't prejudge who is going to be held criminally liable for those decisions. That has to be tried by a court of law with facts and a jury's uh, uh, judgment being applied to those facts. But what I do resent as a Flint person, as a Flint kid, is that we didn't get our day in court. That we didn't have a chance to have evidence brought against those individuals and a determination as to whether it rose to a criminal standard. I believe it did, but I don't think who should be held accountable. Uh, and, 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 but to me, this is a failure of the justice system, and it's, it's one that I think uh, you know, is one of the saddest aspects of the Flint story is that those folks who may have made those deliberate choices knowing that there would be a consequence won't pay the price for that decision.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about the things that still need to be done in Flint, uh you know, I mean it's a, it's a story that has receded of course quite a bit from the from the headlines. There's still a lot of work going on, I know, though, in 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 Flint. But but, in your mind, uh, what are the things that that are still on the list that we that we need to do to make sure again, not just that that the people of Flint get justice, but are set up for a better future than what they had before i I feel like that's such an important standard to keep articulating that what was owed to the people of Flint was not just a restoration of what they had. It was the opportunity to have much more. And and I feel like that's kind of gotten lost in, in, uh, in the way we talk about it.
1: Yeah, it has. And I think part of the problem was many, many folks sort of took the approach that we need to get Flint back to where it was before the crisis. Well, that wasn't a good place to be. And the fact that the crisis occurred is because of the fact that Flint and lots of places like it were sitting on the precipice of a disaster, and the water crisis was the was the event that took them over that precipice. So my view is, to make it right for the people of Flint, not only do we have to provide the health support, which we've been able to deliver, we need to be able to provide economic compensation, which is still yet to be distributed, now, that's underway, mm-hmm. but that has to get done. Those are specifics. The broader uh, change is there's got to be a commitment for a new social contract that says you can't in the wealthiest country on earth have a condition where parks are not maintained, where streets are crumbling, where neighborhoods look like they've been bombed out, where there's vacant abandoned property surrounding those few homes that in some neighborhoods that are still occupied, none of that can be acceptable in, in the wealthiest country on earth. So to me, the specific pieces that have to get done, you know, I was hoping for justice for the perpetrators, mm-hmm. but getting the financial distributions to those people as a result of the civil settlement, making sure that the health support and early childhood education that we are providing now continue well into the future. Those are important, but the big picture is we can't let communities like Flint, uh, you know, it go, we can't just decide that we're going to write these these places off. We have an obligation as, as a society, as a nation, to not allow for uh, such a low standard to be acceptable. There, there are too many neighborhoods where people don't feel safe and, and and don't feel like they have a future. And it's not just Flint. There are lots of places dotting across the country that have that same situation. Our situation came into focus because of the water crisis. I think it would be a shame for that crisis to go back into the pages of history without us addressing the root causes of the problem. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Okay, uh, we are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking with Dan Keldy, congressman from Michigan's 8th District, about his decision to leave. We're going to talk about the future of that new district, that newly drawn district after the 2020 census. What does he expect to see in uh, terms of candidates and, and outcome? We'll also talk about the national political picture, presidential election coming up next year. Uh, what does Dave Kildy think of the candidates and the issues? We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. I do want to get to, to some calls, uh, Dan, but but I, I, I want to start with a, a little news, I think. Uh, Pamela Pugh, who is uh, a member of the State Board of Education, um, announced just 22 minutes ago that she plans to seek uh, the House seat uh, representing Michigan's 8th Congressional District, the one that you are uh, going to vacate after next year. I I just would love to get your reactions to that. Uh, I, I'm sure Pamela is someone who you know well.
1: I do. I uh, worked with, with her off and on during my period in Congress, and even uh, before that. Uh, I've known the family for a long, long time. Her father is a significant political activist in Saginaw and a professor at the local college there. Uh, I think there'll be a number of candidates. Pam is certainly a, a serious candidate and has to be taken as such. Uh, you know, she had initially intended to run for the United States Senate until this opportunity came along. I've spoken to her about this, just to give whatever advice I can. I've spoken to probably half a dozen potential candidates. I think we'll hear other names. Uh, my, my intention is to, uh, to you know, not you get too heavily involved in that, other than to say that whoever the nominee of our party is come August, I will be their number one campaigner. I'm going to try to make sure I can do everything I can to hold this seat.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk a little about the seat itself. Uh, you're the the you represent the eighth district. Now, it's taken me a while to get used to saying that because uh, for most of the time you were in Washington, you were in the fifth district. Um, uh, But we had this redraw, of course, in 2020. We do it every 10 years. Uh, It's a different district than the one you first ran in. And uh in the in the first election we had with the new map uh, which was last year 2022 there was some speculation that you might face uh, a harder time getting reelected than you had in the past it's it's a more mixed district uh, in terms of party affiliation um the other the other dynamic i think that could be interesting next year is that uh, the neighboring district, the seventh, also is an open seat because Alyssa Slotkin, who represents that now, is going to run run for Senate. So you've got these two mid-state uh, districts, both very competitive, that that will be open. I, I I do wonder what you what you make of the politics uh, of that and and of the politics of those two those two seats uh, in a year that that of course is going to be really tight. Uh, and and the, all of the, the, the decisions, I think, are going to be really tight.
1: Well, yeah, they will be. Both both seats that you mentioned, 7th and 8th, the they're both considered sort of toss-up districts. They could go either way. I'm um, obviously much more familiar with the 8th. I've you know lived here my whole life and you know, know it well. It's a district that, it is true, is more competitive, but I think less partisan than a lot of competitive seats. This mm-hmm. is a district that has You know, some some clear Democratic, you know, uh, you know, areas that have strong Democratic history, Uh, same be true of some areas that have a stronger Republican uh, tendency. But the biggest swath of the district are people who are just looking for someone who sees them, who understands their problems and will work with whomever they can to try to address the issues that are important to them. Less partisan, less ideological, more practical. And I think in some ways that's, that's why it was a good fit for me. And despite the fact that it was considered a toss up race and there were millions and millions of dollars spent to try to defeat me, that I won by over 10 points, nearly the same margin that I had won my district in, in 2020, uh, the previous district. So, you know, it is a district that's looking for somebody who's practical, thoughtful, not particularly partisan or ideological. But willing to work with anyone, and that's that's why I'm hoping we'll see come you know, the year from
0: oh. Yeah, uh, I also want to talk about national politics a bit. Of course, you're a supporter of uh, President Joe Biden, uh, but the the polls lately suggest that a lot of Democrats, in fact, are worried about uh, his candidacy for 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 reelection and would prefer that there be some other. Some other choices. I wonder what you make of that, and and th- these numbers that suggest that even here in Michigan, if the election were held today, Donald Trump would would beat uh, 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 Joe Biden, at least according to some of those polls. And I know, look, a, a poll more than a year out from the election is not particularly uh, reliable, but but it's interesting, uh, and and I wonder what you make of of that dynamic.
1: I think the most significant dynamic in any is this polling is that it's coming down again to a choice between Joe Biden and the policies that he represents and Donald Trump and all that comes with that. One of the reflections in a poll is the strength or enthusiasm of support. And what we know about Donald Trump supporters, such as they are, is that they treat this like a religion. The loyalty to Trump transcends their loyalty to just about anything else, including norms of society, even political thought. So you're going to see more strength of support for, for a Donald Trump because the 30% or so that are his bedrock will not leave him no matter what he does, no matter what he says. And that's reflected in the polling. On the other side, you know, we tend to be more deliberative, more thoughtful, more engaged, more speculative. And I think what happens is as we get closer to the election, It just becomes a referendum on these two paths, and that's why I'm not. I'd rather be. I'd rather the polls show Joe Biden to be well ahead. But I'm understanding enough of the dynamic that goes into those numbers that I just think we need to keep our heads down, stay focused, do our work, tell people what we've done, and and for the president to explain what the what the next four years will look like. And I think in that case, if that message gets delivered, I think President Biden will. Will win
0: again, but do you think he has to address what I think are pretty real concerns about his physical ability to continue doing the job for the next four years? I mean, I think that yes, there are there are uh, policy issues that that people are concerned about, and of course the economy is is one of them and and no no question the president could do a better job explaining what he's been doing with the economy now whether it would convince people or not is another question but there's this these these swirling concerns about uh, uh, his age of course but but also uh, his physical appearance and presentation uh, that that make people wonder whether if they did vote for him next year whether he could do the job uh, for, for four more years. It, 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 does he need to, in your view, uh, address that head on? And if he does, how do you even do that?
1: Well, I mean, I think he, he does it uh, from time to time, uh, almost with some humor. Uh, you know, I I, I do think uh, if you put Donald Trump and Joe Biden on bicycles, uh, I, I put my money on Joe Biden every <laughs> single day. You know, I mean... It, the the, uh, the uh, scrutiny that is applied to President Biden, uh, if it were equally applied to the, the readiness of Donald Trump to do that job, I think it's a fair fight. And I think Joe Biden will do just fine. But my, my view on all of this is when it comes to the American people and the people I, I will say just in terms of the Eighth district, what they want to know is, what does this leadership mean to me? Whoever the president of the United States might be, what does that mean to me when I'm sitting at my kitchen table? And they can look at Joe Biden and first the pundits can have whatever commentary they want to have about whether he's beginning to show the signs of aging that we all show over time. But the real question is, what has this guy done to help bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States? I can see in my district the result of the work that President Biden and I and others have done together jobs coming home mm-hmm. very low unemployment coming through the most difficult poorly managed pandemic at the outset to a place where he's had the greatest job creation growth in the history of the united states you know those aren't small feats they weren't going to happen without good leadership they happened because we were able to work uh, together with this president to get things done so i get the i get the speculation But I know that when it comes down to who people want to have representing them in public office, it's people who understand them and will take steps in order to make their lives better. The Infrastructure Law, the -hmm. Chips and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, all this new investment in manufacturing in this country, in creating jobs for for workers, in stabilizing what was a highly unstable economy coming out of the pandemic. That's real success. And, you know, I'll put that record up against the chaos that we saw when Donald Trump was president. And I think the American people will see the same thing I see a clearer path with Joe Biden. Uncertainty, chaos, and danger when it comes to Donald Trump.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's go to Charlie in Detroit. Uh, he wants to know what you think are our biggest threats uh, as a state. And,. A nation. I guess. What are the things that 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 worry you about uh, about us right now?
1: I mean, I think there is a big threat to the to essentially the loss of our of our democracy. Um, You know, we we have seen the coarsening of political speech. We have seen efforts uh, to deny reality, to declare elections to be you know uh, to be irrelevant in a way. Uh, so I, I do think that we have a, a threat there. There are bigger threats that we face in the long term, but in the most immediate term, if we don't address this issue of of, of protecting our democracy, we're not going to be able to solve the bigger problems that we face as a nation. So to me, that's one that can't be ignored.
0: Um, I, I want to talk uh, just a little in, in the minutes we have left about um, your, your your vision for. Uh, our country going forward I mean this is a complicated place what do you think uh, are our prospects for sorting out the things that are that are vexing us right now and and you know can we get to uh, this kind of better space that I think we've been struggling for for a long time and it sometimes seems like we're pretty close uh, we may be a little further these days than than we have been
1: yeah I mean I, I it's, Interesting is I feel optimistic uh, on one hand, but concerned on the other. Optimistic in the sense that the solutions to the challenges that we face are right in front of us. We know what works. We know how to invest in American workers. We know how to you know, invest in an economy that is more inclusive and brings folks along. We know we have the wealth in this country to make sure that everybody lives in a decent neighborhood. We have the tools question is whether we'll use them. And that's where my concern comes in. Uh, as I said to the previous question, the, the reason to be concerned is that we might not get to the solutions that are right there within our reach unless we can find a, a better way to speak with one another mm-hmm. and to find that table of goodwill that has been elusive over the history of our country. I mean, we can't wax uh, you know nostalgic about the past and ignore the the tragedies of our past, but it's always been going in a positive direction in the right direction with, you know, you know, with, with, with uneven progress, but progress nonetheless. And if there's a concern that I have right now is that if we don't fix the ability to speak with one another and to come to a table of goodwill we could lose that progress. We could actually see ourselves going in the wrong direction. I think that's the biggest tragedy. America's always been about yearning to be better. And what we have are too many voices who have this nostalgic view of a past, which was pretty ugly. Mm-hmm. They want to take us back to something that none of us really want to go back to. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay, uh, Dan Kildee, congressman who represents Michigan's eighth district uh, in Washington uh, really great of course to have you here uh, sorry to see you leave uh, next year but but totally understand uh, the, the the motivation and, and much respect to you for all the time that you've given us in uh, in public service thanks so much for joining us
1: Thank you Stephen for everything I appreciate it.
0: Today's episode of Detroit Today was produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Nate Bender. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Editing and mixing is by Connor Anderson. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Our podcast manager is David Lyons, and our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET Public Radio. If you love the conversations we have on Detroit Today, consider donating to WDET, the public radio station in Detroit that we call home. If you want to be a part of the conversation and call in, you can listen live every day on WDET.org or on the WDET mobile app. Or if you live in southeast Michigan and still love listening to good old-fashioned radio like me, tune in to 1019FM.